0: Good morning to you all this morning. I'd It's an absolutely beautiful morning today. You know, of all of the promises that are made to human beings, all of the wonderful things that are said, and one of the most wonderful must be the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and how does it finish and i will give you rest rest how many of us just long for rest Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 a similar promise you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace. I think that's something that all human beings long for. We want rest. We want peace. We want contentment. We want a life of serenity. But how do you get it? When I use the word contentment, what comes to mind? This is your chance to shine. What comes to mind when I say contentment? What picture? Very happy. In your, in your situation. Very, very happy in your situation, satisfied, calm. Not in need. Not in need. I was sort of thinking of uh, sunset on the Zambezi River actually, (laughs) (laughs) on a deck chair, listening to the hippos, drinking tea, (laughs) contentment. I'd like to suggest this morning, dear friends, that even though contentment is so very, very valuable, I think it's also very rare, restfulness, very valuable but very rare, and it seems that we just sort of go from running to running. We run all day long, go to sleep to wake up, in order to run all day long, to go to sleep, to wake up. It just goes round and round, and I think, by and large, we often lack contentment. Of course, the advertising world is built on discontent. Oh, you've got that phone? You shouldn't have that phone. You should have that phone. You do your hair this way, you shouldn't do your hair this way, you should do it that way. You have that body, you really shouldn't have that body. You should have that body. You have that car, really? No, you should have... And that's what the advertising world is built on. It's built on just discontentment. I wonder how many of us, or maybe how few of us, are truly contented. And I'd like to look at one of my favorite psalms, which speaks about contentment. And really what it is... It's a little snapshot of a truly contented saint, but in the snapshot we find some lessons as to how to be content, and that is Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you turn there, Psalm 131. Now, very quick background. When you look at the Book of Psalms, we often think that the Book of Psalms is just 150 songs or poems put together and without any sort of... Um, structure or just somewhat random, but that's not true. In actual fact, there are five books in the books of Psalms. I don't know if you knew that, but they're divided into five different sections. And then within those sections, there are collections of Psalms around a theme, sometimes the theme of the Lord's name, sometimes the theme of worship or the theme of suffering, whatever it might be. And there's a particular group of Psalms which I love, which are Psalms 120 to 134, and those are what are known as the Psalms of Ascent. A S C E N T S ascent the Psalms of ascent. How many of you have heard of those before? You know, if you were uh, memorized in the King James version, they used to be called the Psalms of Degrees. Now, what are these Psalms of Degrees or these Psalms of Ascent? There's actually three different theories. First theory is because, sorry, within those Psalms of Ascent, one twenty to one thirty-four, you've got this very definite movement towards God, towards the Lord, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. So where did they come in? Three theories. Number one, in exile, as the exiles were given the freedom to return to Jerusalem. As they went to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs because they're moving towards the Lord. Second theory was these were songs sung by the priests as they went up the steps on their way to offer the sacrifice of worship. So we're getting closer to the Lord. But the third, and I think this is the major opinion, it's certainly one that I think makes most sense is that these were pilgrim songs. Three times a year, three great feasts, all of the Israelites, all of the Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. And so it is, it is suggested, and I think it holds true, that these are the songs that were sung as the pilgrims wended their way up to Jerusalem. Because of course, Jerusalem is set on a hill. The temple is on a hill. So they, they're moving upwards. And as they go as pilgrims towards Jerusalem, they are singing these songs. Now the reason why I think that's a particularly helpful interpretation of the Psalms of a sense is because we are pilgrims, <laughs> we are pilgrims, all right? we're also moving towards the Lord, the, 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 the new city, the new Jerusalem, we're, we're heading in that direction to be with the Lord, and so these songs I think take on a particular poignancy, a particular relevance in our lives, because we are pilgrims, we're passing through, and the pilgrims back then would have had a sense of the privilege of going to be with the Lord, that's us. They would have a sense of their responsibility in worshipping the Lord. That's us. They would have a sense of the enemies trying to stop them worshipping the Lord. That's us. They'd be aware of their own sins that are preventing true worship of the Lord. That's us. And you'll find all of those themes in the Songs of Ascent. And a particular one that I love is Psalm 131. As these pilgrims go along in this world of turmoil towards meeting with God, they sing the psalm that speaks of contentment. Let me read it and then pray. Psalm 131, and you'll see at the top a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. This dear friends is the word of the Lord, let's pray. Thanks be to God for his word, Lord. And as we look at this delightful little psalm, may we find so much that is relevant for us in our world of turmoil, anxiety, chaos, noise, movement, stress, all the rest of it. May we learn the secret of contentment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Right, so the psalm is only three verses long, and uh, what's rather nice is that those three verses are three separate sections. And we're talking about the contented saint here in this psalm, and we'll see that the contented saint in verse one has a humble heart. We're going to see in verse 2 that the contented saint has a settled soul. And then finally in verse 3, a contented saint has a clear confidence. So let's work through those things together. These are the qualities of a person who has attained contentment. First of all, a contented saint has a humble heart in verse 1. Now one of the consistent themes in the Bible is that God is opposed to pride. Totally opposed to human pride. There's a couple of really scary scriptures in the Bible. I mean, there's several of them. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter also quotes that. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud. Now, I don't know about you. I don't particularly want God as my opponent. <laughs> I don't want God opposing me. But God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. This is important. God is against pride. And if you and I want to have a heart of contentment and a life of of restfulness, we need to make sure, first of all, we have a humble heart. You notice in verse 1, the psalmist makes three statements about himself and his heart. Number one, my heart is not proud. Number two, nor are my eyes haughty or lofty. Number three nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Let's just think through those three. I think the first two refer to attitudes and the third one refers to action. First of all is attitudes. The first thing he says of himself is, my heart is not proud. Now the word heart there, often in, in, in English we think heart is emotion. I love you with all my heart, my, all my emotion. Well no, that's not, that's not biblical. Biblically, the heart is the inner person. It's the, it's the real you. It's the... It's your real character. It's what's inside. And, and the psalmist, David, is able to say, my heart, who I am on the inside, is not proud. And what is pride? If I was to ask you, define pride, what would you say? Arrogance? arrogance? That's actually, with all due respect, that's not, that's not a definition, it's a synonym. It's <coughs> a great synonym. But how would you define it? What is pride or arrogance? Self. It's self, isn't it? What's the the central letter in pride? (laughs) I. Interesting, same letter right in the center of the word sin. And I think the fact that I is in the middle of pride just tells it all. Pride is I am in the center of everything. The world revolves around me. And David can say, my heart is free from the sin of Pride. You know, my hopes, my ambition, my importance, my needs, my feelings, my, 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 it's all about me, but not with David. He says, my heart is humble. And then he makes a second statement. He says, not only is my heart humble, but my eyes are not haughty or lofty. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Lofty eyes. I'd like to suggest that lofty eyes are lofty in two ways. Lofty, of course, means lifted up, high, all right, haughty. And I'd like to suggest that these haughty eyes, they follow a proud heart. If you have a proud heart, you have haughty eyes. They're eyes that are constantly looking up for yourself. You know, looking up for my interests, looking up for what I want, my position, my possessions. It's looking up to me, but it's also looking down to you, right, It's looking down on everybody else, down upon other people, scornful of their abilities, maybe disdainful of their opinions, you don't care about their needs. So a haughty eye is, you know, I'm just so jolly important. And you? Well, who are you anyway? Now, obviously I I've 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 made extremes there, friends, but we need to sort of check our own hearts. And maybe it's not quite as obvious as I've just stated it. But I think the human default is, you know, I'm jolly important. And and other people are not nearly as important as me. And it's interesting the way a humble heart and non-lofty eyes connect together because a heart expresses itself outwardly. Who I am, excuse me, who I am on the inside will show itself by what I do on the outside. And if I have a, excuse me, if I have a heart that is proud, I will have eyes that are lofty. So, you want contentment? Well, there's a path to contentment. You need a humble heart. You've got to make sure you don't have lofty eyes. If I can just make a very quick aside. I've <laughs> One of the things that I do a lot of is drink coffee. I spend a lot of my time just meeting people, particularly young men, and I meet them over coffee. And when, my, when I die, I, I said to Miriam, you can just put on my tombstone, he drank coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but as I, as I meet with people um, in restaurants and coffee shops, or coffee shops really, not restaurants, I watch the way people treat waiters and waitresses and you know it's absolutely disgusting. It's as though they don't exist, it's as though they aren't human beings, they don't need a please or a thank you or an acknowledgement or anything. Those are are lofty eyes, those are proud hearts and I would ask you dear friend, just test yourself, test yourself, how's your heart, how are your eyes. The third thing he says, and I think he's moving on from, from attitudes. In the first line, to actions. He goes on to say, Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now we need to give a bit of careful thought to these phrases. David speaks about two things, and I realize your versions are slightly different from mine. I'm just going to keep referring to the NAS. He speaks about great matters on the one side and things too difficult or too marvelous. So great matters or things too difficult. And David says, those great matters, those things too difficult, I do not involve myself in them. I think the NIV has the word concern. I don't concern myself about them. Now, please follow for a few moments, friends. The Hebrew word that that word involve or concern comes from has got the idea of walking after, all right? So David is saying, you know, there are some things which are so difficult, I don't walk after them. And there are some things that are too great and too marvelous for me. I don't walk after them. He's not going to waste his time walking after things that he cannot change or affect. And friends, the reality is there are a whole bunch of things that human beings cannot do. And there are a whole bunch of things that human beings cannot know. And part of David's humility is the recognition of that truth and his willingness just to be content with his own limited abilities and own limited knowledge. You know, there's some things which are just too great for us. Some truths which are just too deep for us. Does that mean we shouldn't strive for what's best? Does that mean we shouldn't have godly ambition? No, not at all. God calls us to do all that we can do. But listen carefully. He never calls us to do what we cannot do. And God calls us to know all that we can know. But he never calls us to to know what we cannot know. And friends, the reality is there's lots of things we can't do. I appreciated Linda's prayer about the government. You know, you just... What do you do? There's not much we can do. Pray. We can pray. And we're not going to stop doing that. But I think sometimes many of our frustrations come because we, we want to do something and we just know we can't do it. I'm not saying don't do what you can do, please don't get me wrong, but when you get to the end of what you can do, don't stress about what you can't do. Maybe some of us have got children or grandchildren who don't know the Lord. You can't change their hearts, only God can. So don't stress about you changing their hearts. What about the future? You can't guarantee the future. David says, I'm not going to walk after that. (laughs) That's in God's hands. And we could go on and on. You get the point though, dear friends. There's some things we can't do. Don't walk after them. There's also some things we can't know. And you know, God sometimes does things that just don't make sense. I know you're not an amening church, but amen to that? (laughs) Oh, that's a King's Kingsmead (laughs) amen. But it's true, friends. Sometimes God does things and you say, Lord, i got to be honest, that just didn't look good. And I can't make sense of that. And if we're honest, we say, Lord, I think from my perspective you messed up. But then we have to say, but you didn't. Because there's some things I cannot understand. And David doesn't go walking after those friends. You know, that's one of the things that gives us such great discontent is that we... We just can't understand God and we think we ought to understand God and so we stress because we don't understand God. But we can't understand God. And He wants us to understand as much as possible. But beyond those limits, don't walk after them. Does that make sense? And I wonder, I would just challenge you, just think about things that you're wanting to change that you cannot change. Don't walk after those. Pray about them, trust them to God and leave them there. Things that you want to know about how God works and you just can't understand it, understand as much as you can. But what you can't understand, let it go. Don't walk after it. David's heart was humble and David's eyes were not lofty and David realized his own weakness and his limits. And notice he says all of these things in the presence of God, just very quickly before we move on to the second point. Notice the first two words, O Lord, my heart is not proud. You know, it's one thing for me to say to you, you know, I'm not proud. It's another thing for me to say that to God, isn't it? Because when you look at me, you think, oh, it's such a nice man. He's such a humble guy. Well, I hope you think something along those lines, right? Because you don't know what's on the inside. But God does. And it's amazing that David is able to say to God, God, you know my heart. (laughs) It's not humble. God, you know my eyes. They're not lifted up in my own ambition or down in arrogance. You know that. And Lord, you know I realize my limits. You know all of this, Lord. That's a challenge for us, dear friends. Can we say that in the presence of God? Well, let's move on. Not only does he have this humble heart in verse 1, but he also has what I've called a settled soul in verse 2. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. Now in the NAS, the word starts off with surely. I think the NIV has just got the word but, and with all due respect to the NIV, the word but is not strong enough. This word surely has got the idea of a solemn declaration, almost like making an oath. So David is saying, this is absolutely certain, this is what I have done. And then he says he has composed and quieted his soul. And those are two lovely words. The word composed there, if you're taking notes, it's used in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 25. Isaiah 28, verse 25. It's used of a farmer who prepares a land. And those of you who've had experience with farming, once the land has been cleared of the trees and everything, and what does the farmer do next before he starts putting in a crop? What's he got to do? He's got to plow the field. He's got to level it. He's got to smooth it. He's got to compose it. That's the word here. Lovely word, isn't it? My, my, My soul, by nature, is sort of like a... It's all up and down. But I have composed my soul. And then he says, I've quieted my soul. And there, that word quieted means still. Hushed. We had that terrible storm, remember, a few months ago. We lost a few trees, sadly, I'm sure... Some of you did as well. Much damage. The amazing thing about that storm... Do you remember the one I'm talking about, about 4.30 in the morning? Horrible, horrible. The amazing thing was the next morning it was so peaceful. (laughs) So peaceful. And that's the idea of this peace. It's just so peaceful. So I have quieted my soul. And again, the implication is because he's had to quiet his soul... His soul normally is like this, restless and anxious and noisy and running around. I've quieted it. David's soul needs to be stilled and quieted. And will you notice, dear friends, who is the one who does the composing and the stilling, the silencing? Who is the one who does it? David does it himself. David does it himself. And you know, we've got this idea sometimes, I think, that peace and composure and quietness of soul is... You know, just God just clicks his fingers with all due respect to the Lord. He just clicks his fingers and it magically happens to us. Well, no. David says, I have composed and I have quieted my soul. I have taken those things that are troubling and I have dealt with them. And of course, God helps us. God works with us. God gives us his spirit. Isaiah 26.3, which I quoted earlier. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed upon you because he trusts in you. God's going to keep us in peace, but we're the ones who trust in him. And so there's this important balance, dear friends. God will help us, but we've got to do it. And so if you have a soul that is up and down, like an unplowed field or it's like a restless sea, you've got to still it. Ask God for help. Deal with those issues that are troubling you. Take them to the Lord. Pray about them. And then? then leave them with him. And then David gives this amazing picture of a little child, second part of verse 2. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. And I'm sure you'll agree that in terms of um, human pictures, there's very few pictures that communicate the idea of peace and serenity more than a little child being held in his mother's arms. And and I and I remember seeing I wish I could remember specifically where it was, but there was a, a news clip about some place of terrible devastation and everything is broken and, and there's this woman with a baby and the baby's fast asleep. That's the picture that David uses about how his soul is. My soul is like a weaned child. But why does he refer to a weaned child? Any thoughts? Because the picture I gave child. could have been a it's nursing a child, but it's a weaned child. child. yeah a child is not weaned. It often gets hungry and is away from stilt and quieted. Right, so it's it can be right very, very fretful. And yeah. right. yeah. That's a man saying that. Okay, well done, Mike. <laughs> well done. Well done. Anything else about a weaned child? Why does he use weaned child? But not so dependent mm. on the mother. Not so dependent upon the mother. Yes, I'll come back to that. The dependent obviously is a word you've got to be very careful with in terms of God, but, but I know I' know what you're saying. Any other thoughts? I mean I've never weaned a child. But I watched my wife I've watched my wife wean four of them All right. And it's a, it's a tough time. It's a tough time for the kid and it's a tough time for the mom. And you know, do moms not like their children anymore? when they wean them, you know, is this, a, is this some sort of act of cruelty, uh, I've ended up loving you and I don't love you anymore, you horrible thing, not at all, not at all, it's an important part of the child growing up. My wife used to say, forgive me if it's a bit blunt, she used to say, you know, I think I'm just like a milk bar to these children, you know, that's all I'm here for, is just give them milk and that's why they come, well to a large extent that's true. But then when they come and they no longer want the milk, what do they want? Just want love. They just want mom and mom's love. They just want mom. And I think that's why David has chosen a weaned child. I think on the one side it may be God weaning us off the things of the world. And I think there's a, a real element there because the things of the world do make us fretful and worried and anxious. So he's weaning us off the things of the world. You know, actually don't need those but I think he's also wanting to wean us off himself. Now, I'm going to pick up on your word, dependence. Now, God never wants us to be weaned off him. But there is a sense in which he does. He wants us to be weaned off just loving him for what he does. And instead, simply love him for who he He is. is. And that's the difference between a nursing child and a weaned child on their mother's lap. The one, I love you, mom, Give me milk. The other one? I just love you, Mom. And I mean, I I struggle to, to put into words, dear friends, what that means for a Christian. Can you imagine being a Christian like that? Lord, you don't have to give me anything. You're the giver of all good gifts, but just to be in your presence, loving you, knowing you, being known by you, My soul is like a weaned child within me." Any thoughts? Any comments? Wouldn't that be great? Humble heart. And then he's got this quiet and silent soul. And then notice verse 3. He's got a confidence, a clear confidence. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. It's interesting that you always need to look at Psalms analytically. The beginning of the Psalm and the end of the Psalm begin with the O. It's a word of address. He starts off addressing the Lord, O Lord, but he ends off addressing Israel. So what's happening here? It seems kind of weird. He's been talking about himself this humbled heart and this settled soul. But now he's talking to Israel. And if I can go back to the, uh, the weaned child, um, it's, it's probably a little bit of an unrealistic scenario I'm about to paint, but it's as though this weaned child is just resting on mom's, on mom's lap and nuzzling against her bosom, totally content. And then he looks around at all these other kids running around. They're all so fretful. They're all so anxious. They're, all so, they're running around like crazy. They're not settled. And I wonder if he's sort of from that position of restfulness, he's sort of saying to them, you know what you need to do? You need to put your hope in the Lord. You need to trust in him. Just exactly what I'm doing. You need to, as it were, climb up, I say it respectfully, climb up onto his lap and just know his peace. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And will you notice that it's, it's now and it's forever? Biblical hope is not lottery hope. I hope I win the lottery. (laughs) Chances? Almost zero. Biblical hope is certainty. Oh Israel, just place your certain confidence in the Lord. You're so anxious. You're so worried. You're so fretful. So troubled. Just put your hope in the Lord. And if you haven't done it before, from this time forth. never ever stop. Dear friends, I think one of the greatest testimonies we as Christians can have in this modern world is the testimony of this type of contentment, this type of restfulness. Doesn't come easy, doesn't come naturally, we've got to work on it. Humble heart, settled soul, clear confidence. And of course nobody's fulfilled this Psalm perfectly except Jesus, right? Jesus was the ultimate humble heart. Settle soul and clear confidence. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were in the boat and there was a terrible storm that came up and the disciples were doing all that they could do to navigate through the storm. And what was Jesus doing? Do you remember the story? Fast asleep in the boat. Now it amazes me that he could sleep in the storm. Why was that mentioned? I can't remember which gospel it is mentioned in. But why is that mentioned? Because he was totally at peace and at rest in the middle of the storm. That's what we want, don't we, friends? And remember the promise I started off with and I close with the same one. This same one, this Jesus, who has found perfect contentment and rest in his relationship with his Father is the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. I pray that for you, dear friends, and for myself. Father, troubled world, troubled lives, anxieties, fears, insecurities, forgive us pride, ambition, self-centeredness, these are all of the things that we come to you with, and when we come with all of that junk, Lord, I'm sure you must shake your head and say, why are you holding on to all of this? Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters. Help us to be truly humble in heart, Lord. Truly humble. Not just pretending, forgive me, Lord. I'm a huge pretender and I hate it. But to be able to say before you, my heart is humble. And then, Lord, give us grace to settle our souls. There's some things just too big and too difficult and too complicated. Help us to leave those with you. Then, Father, help us to encourage one another, maybe to speak to one another, maybe to take this psalm and go and read it to a friend who's going through tough times and say to other people, O Israel, O believer, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And, Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised to give us rest, help us to find our rest in you. And may we be witnesses to you and to your grace in this troubled world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, dear friends. May the Lord be with you.